Part sixteen of a journal of impressions in Belgium by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part sixteen. I am reminded that I have not packed yet, nor dressed for the journey. I go over and pack and dress. I leave behind what I don't need, and it takes seven minutes. There is something sad and terrible about the little hotel and its proprietors and their daughter who has waited on me. They have so much the air of waiting, of being on the eve. They hang about doing nothing. They sit mournfully in a corner of the half-darkened restaurant. As I come and go, they smile at me with the patient Belgian smile that says, C'est triste, n'est-ce pas? And no more. The landlord puts on his soft brown felt hat and carries my luggage over to the Flandria. He stays there hanging about the porch, fascinated by these preparations for departure. There is the same terrible half-darkness here, the same expectant stillness. Now and then the servants of the hospital look at each other, and there are whisperings, mutterings. They sound sinister somehow, and inimical. Or perhaps I imagine this because I do not take kindly to retreating. Anyhow, I am only aware of them afterwards, for now it is time to go and fetch Miss Ashley Smith and her three wounded men from the convent. Tom has come up with his first ambulance car. He is waiting for orders in the porch. His enormous motor goggles are pushed up over the peak of his cap. They make it look like some formidable helmet. They give an air of mastership to Tom's face. At this last hour it wears its expression of righteous protest, of volcanic patience, of exasperated discipline. The commandant is nowhere to be seen, and every minute of his delay increases Tom's sense of tortured integrity. I tell Tom that he is to drive me at once to the convent of St. Pierre. He wants to know what for. I tell him it is to fetch Miss Ashley Smith and three British wounded. He shrugs his shoulders. He knows nothing about the convent of St. Pierre and Miss Ashley Smith and three British wounded, and his shrug implies that he cares less, and he says he has no orders to go and fetch them. I perceive that in this supreme moment I am up against Tom's superstition. He won't move anywhere without orders. It is his one means of putting himself in the right and everybody else in the wrong. And the worst of it is that he is right. I am also up against Tom's sex prejudices. I remember that he is said to have sworn with an oath that he wasn't going to take orders from any woman. And the commandant is nowhere to be seen. Tom sticks to the ledge of the porch and stares at me defiantly. The servants of the hospital come out and look at us. There are so many reinforcements to Tom's position. I tell him that the arrangement has been made with the commandant's consent and I repeat firmly that he is to get into his car this minute and drive to the convent of St. Pierre. He says he does not know where the convent is. It may be anywhere. I tell him where it is, and he says again he hasn't got orders. I stand over him, and with savage and violent determination I say, You've got them now. And actually Tom obeys. He says, All right, all right, all right, very fast and humps his shoulders and slouches off to his car. He cranks it up with less vehemence than I have yet known him bring to the starting of any car. We get in. Then, and not till then, I am placable. I say, you see, Tom, 
It wouldn't do to leave that lady and three British wounded behind, would it? What he says about orders then is purely by way of apology. Regardless of my instructions, he does what I did and dashes up the wrong boulevard as if the Germans were even now marching into the Place behind him. But he works round somehow and we arrive. They are all there, ready and waiting, and the mother superior and two of her nuns are in the corridor. They bring out glasses of hot milk for everybody. They are so gentle and so kind that I recall with agony my impatience when I rang at their gate. Even familiar French words desert me in this crisis, and I implore Miss Ashley Smith to convey my regrets for my rudeness. Their only answer is to smile and press hot milk on me. I am glad of it, for I have been so absorbed in the drama of preparation that I have entirely forgotten to eat anything since lunch. The wounded are brought along the passage. We help them into the ambulance. Two, Williams and Blank, are only slightly wounded. They can sit up all the way. But the third, Fisher, is wounded in the head. Sometimes he is delirious and must be looked after. A fourth man is dying and must be left behind. Then we say goodbye to the nuns. The other ambulance cars are drawn up in the place before the Flandria waiting. For the first time I hate the sight of them. This feeling is inexplicable but profound. We arrange for the final disposal of the wounded in one of the new Daimlers, where they can all lie down. Mrs. Torrance comes out and helps us. The commandant is not there yet. Dr. Haynes and Dr. Bird pack Dr. Blank away well inside the car. They are very quiet and very firm and refuse to travel otherwise than together. Mrs. Torrance goes with the wounded. I go into the hospital and upstairs to our quarters to see if anything has been left behind. If I can find Marie, we must take her. There is room after all. But Marie is nowhere to be seen. Nobody is to be seen but the Belgian night nurses on duty, watching, one on each landing at the entrance to her corridor. They smile at me gravely and sadly as they say goodbye. I have left many places, many houses, many people behind me, knowing that I shall never see them again. But of all leave-takings, this seems to me the worst. For those others I have been something, done something that absolves me. But for these and for this place I have not done anything, and now there is not anything to be done. I go slowly downstairs. Each flight is a more abominable descent. At each flight I stand still and pull myself together to face the next nurse on the next landing. At the second story I go past without looking. I know every stain on the floor of the corridor there as you turn to the right. The number of the door and the names on the card beside it have made a pattern on my brain. It is quarter to three. They are all ready now. The commandant is there giving the final orders and stowing away the nine wounded he has brought from Mele. The hall of the hospital is utterly deserted. So is the place outside it. And in the stillness and desolation, our going has an air of intolerable secrecy, of furtive avoidance of fate. This field ambulance of ours abhors retreat. It is dark with the black darkness before dawn. And the Belgian Red Cross guides have all gone. There is nobody to show us the roads. At the last minute we find a Belgian soldier who will take us as far as Eklu. The commandant has arranged to stay at Eklu for a few hours. Some friends there have offered him their house. The wounded are to be put up at the convent. 
Eclu is about halfway between Ghent and Bruges. We start. Tom's car goes first with the Belgian soldier in front. Ursula Dearmer, Mrs. Lambert, Miss Ashley Smith, and Mr. Riley and I are inside. The commandant sits silent, wrapped in meditation on the step. We are not going so very fast, not faster than the three cars behind us, and the slowest of the three, the Fiat with the hard tires carrying the baggage, sets the pace. We must keep within their sight or they may lose their way. But though we are not really going fast, the speed seems intolerable, especially the speed that swings us out of sight of the Flandria. You think that is the worst, but it isn't. The speed with its steady acceleration grows more intolerable with every mile. Your sense of safety grows intolerable. You never knew that safety could hurt like this. Somewhere on this road the Belgian army has gone before us. We have got to go with it. We have had our orders. That thought consoles you, but not for long. You may call it following the Belgian army, but the Belgian army is retreating and you are retreating with it. There is nothing else you can do, but that does not make it any better. And this speed of the motor over the flat roads, this speed that cuts the air, driving its furrow so fast that the wind rushes by you like strong water, this speed that so inspired and exalted you when it brought you into Flanders, when it took you to Antwerp and Berlaire and Lokeren and Mele, this vehement and frightful and relentless speed is the thing that beats you down and tortures you. For several hours, ever since you had your orders to pack up and go, you have been working with no other purpose than this going. You have contemplated it many times with equanimity, with indifference. You knew all along that it was not possible to stay in Ghent forever, and when you were helping to get the wounded into the ambulances, you thought it would be the easiest thing in the world to get in yourself and go with them. When you had time to think about it, you were even aware of looking forward with pleasure to the thrill of a clean run before the Germans. You never thought, and nobody could possibly have told you, that it would be like this. I never thought, and nobody could possibly have told me, that I was going to behave as I did then. The thing began with the first turn of the road that hid the Flandria. Up till that moment, whatever I may have felt about the people we had to leave behind us, as long as none of our field women were left behind, I had not the smallest objection to being saved myself. And if it had occurred to me to stay behind for the sake of one man who couldn't be moved, and who had the best surgeon in the hospital and the pick of the nursing staff to look after him, I think I should have disposed of the idea as sheer sentimentalism. When I was with him tonight, I could think of nothing but the wounded in the convent of St. Pierre, and afterwards there had been so much to do. And now that there was nothing more to do, I couldn't think of anything but that one man. The night before came back to me in a vision, or rather an obsession, infinitely more present, more visible and palpable than this night that we were living in. The light with the red shade hung just over my head on my right hand. The blond walls were round me. They shut me in alone with the wounded man who lay stretched before me on the bed, and the moments were measured by the rhythm of his breathing and by the closing and opening of his eyes. I thought, he will open his eyes tonight and look for me and I shall not be there. He will know that he has been left to the Belgians, who cannot understand him, whom he cannot understand, and he will think that I have betrayed him. I felt as if I had betrayed him. I am sitting between Mr. Riley and Miss Ashley Smith. Mr. Riley is ill. 
he has got blood poisoning through a cut in his hand every now and then i remember him and draw the rug over his knees as it slips miss ashley smith tired with her night watching has gone to sleep with her head on my shoulder where it must be horribly jolted and shaken by my cough which of course chooses this moment to break out again i try to get into a position that will rest her better and between her and mr riley i forget for a second then the obsession begins again and i am shut in between the blond walls with the wounded man i feel his hand and arm lying heavily on my shoulder in the attempt to support me as i kneel by his bed with my arms stretched out together under the hollow of his back as we wait for the pillow that never comes it is quite certain that i have betrayed him it seems to me then that nothing that could happen to me in ghent could be more infernal than leaving it and i think that when the ambulance stops to put down the belgian soldier i will get out and walk back with him to ghent every half mile i think that the ambulance will stop to put down the belgian soldier but the ambulance does not stop it goes on and on and we have got to ecloo before we seem to have put three miles between us and ghent still though i'm dead tired when we get there i can walk three miles easily i do not feel at all insane with my obsession on the contrary these moments are moments of exceptional lucidity even now five months after i cannot tell whether it was or was not insanity while the commandant goes to look for the convent i get out and look for the belgian soldier other belgian soldiers have joined him in the village street i tell him i want to go back to ghent i ask him how far it is to walk and if he will take me and he says it is twenty kilometres the other soldiers say too it is twenty kilometres i had thought it couldn't possibly be more than four or five at the outside and i am just sane enough to know that i can't walk as far as that if i'm to be any good when i get there we wait in the village while they find the convent and take the wounded men there we wait while the commandant goes off in the dark to find his friend's house the house stands in a garden somewhere beyond the railway station up a rough village street and a stretch of country road it is about four in the morning when we get there a thin ooze of light is beginning to leak through the mist the mist holds it as a dark cloth holds a fluid that bleaches it there is something queer about this light there is something queer something almost inimical about the garden as if it tried to protect itself by enchantment from the fifteen who are invading it the mist stands straight up from the earth like a high wall drawn close about the house it blocks with dense grey stuff every inch of space between the bushes and trees they are thrust forward rank upon rank closing in upon the house they loom enormous and near a few paces further back they appear as without substance in the dense grey stuff that invests them their tops are tangled and lost in a web of grey in this strange garden it is as if space itself had solidified in masses and solid objects had become spaces between when your eyes get used to this curious inversion it is as if the mist was no longer a wall but a growth the garden is the heart of a jungle bleached by enchantment and struck with stillness and cold a tangle of grey a muffled huddled and stifled bower all grey and webbed and laced with grey the door of the house opens and the effect of queerness of inimical magic disappears mr e our kind dutch host and mrs e our kind english hostess 
have got up out of their beds to receive us. This hospitality of theirs is not a little thing when you think that their house is to be invaded by Germans, perhaps today. It is really dreadful to think of the nuisance we must have been to these dear people on the eve of their own flight. They do not allow you to think of it. For all you are to see of the tragedy, they and their house might be remaining at Eklu in leisure and perfect hospitality and peace. Only as they see us pouring in over their threshold, a hovering twinkle in their kind eyes shows that they are not blind to the comic aspects of retreats. They have only one spare bedroom which they offer, but they have filled their drawing-room with blankets, piles and piles of white fleecy blankets on chairs and sofas and on the floor, and they have built up a roaring fire. It is as if they were succoring fifteen survivors of shipwreck or of earthquake or the remnants of a forlorn hope. To be sure, we are flying from Ghent, but we have only flown twenty kilometers as yet. However, most of the corps have been up all night for several nights, and the mist outside is a clinging and a biting mist, and everybody is grateful. I shall never forget the look of the ease drawing-room, smothered in blankets and littered with the members of the corps, who lay about it in every pathetic posture of fatigue. A group of seven or eight snuggled down among the blankets on the floor in front of the hearth, like a camp before a campfire. Janet McNeil curled up on one window-seat, and Ursula Dearmer, rolled in a blanket on the other, had the heart-rending beauty of furry animals under torpor. The chauffeurs Tom and Bert made themselves entirely lovable by going to sleep bolt upright on dining-room chairs on the outer ring of the camp. The ease furniture came in where it could with fantastic and incongruous effect. I don't know how I got through the next three hours for my obsession came back on me again and again, and as soon as I shut my eyes I saw the face and eyes of the wounded man. I remember sitting part of the time beside Miss Ashley Smith, wide awake, in a corner of the room behind Bert's chair. I remember wandering about the E's house. I must have got out of it, for I also remember finding myself in their garden at sunrise. And I remember the garden, though I was not perfectly aware of it at the time. It had a divine beauty, a serenity that refused to enter into, to ally itself in any way with an experience tainted by the sadness of the retreat from Ghent. But because of its supernatural detachment and tranquillity, and its no less supernatural illumination, I recalled it the more vividly afterwards. It was full of tall bushes and little slender trees, standing in a delicate light. The mist had cleared to the transparency of still water, so still that under it the bushes and the trees stood in a cold, quiet radiance without a shimmer. The light itself was intensely still. What you saw was not the approach of light, but its mysterious arrest. It was held suspended in crystalline vapor, in thin shafts of violet and gold, clear as panes. It was caught and lifted upwards by the high bushes and the slender trees. It was veiled in the silver-green masses of their tops. Every green leaf and every blade of grass was a vessel charged. It was not so much that the light revealed these things as that these things revealed the light. There was no kindling touch, no tremor of dawn in that garden. It was as if it had removed the walls and put off the lacing webs and the thick cloths of grey stuff by some mystic impulse of its own 
as if it maintained itself in stillness by an inner flame only the very finest tissues yet clung to it to show that it was the same garden that disclosed itself in this clarity and beauty end of part sixteen recording by expatriate in bangor maine